Welcome to this very special season of Delving Into Dance. This season, Ancestors and Anecdotes is a partnership with Ozdance Victoria, exploring the perspectives of some of Australia's female dance pioneers. This season forms the auditory component of the exhibition titled Ancestors and Anecdotes, opening concurrently with the 2017 Australian Dance Awards. This exhibition pays homage to the invaluable work of Australia's dance pioneers and the manner in which their legacy endures today. The focus is on five legendary dance pioneers, Cheryl Stock, Margaret Lassica through the perspective of her daughter Shelley, Elizabeth Cameron Dullman, Carol Johnson and Shirley McKechnie. This episode explores anecdotes of Cheryl Stock, instrumental in establishing Dance North. Now the Head of Cultural Leadership at NIDA, Cheryl's legacy in dance and academia is extraordinary. Interviewed by Jonathan Homsley, this interview embarks on an alienated journey of stories and mementos from Cheryl's extraordinary life. Well, thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I really, really appreciate it. I know you're a very busy lady. Um, and I was doing some research and preparing for everything, and I just was engulfed by a sea of information. I know it is a bit sad when you've lived long enough. You do. No, it's not sad. It's a, it's amazing. It's interesting to see how your practice shifts and molds into so many things. Um, and you would have taught and have shared a legacy with hundreds, probably thousands of students. Um, thousands. thousands. Actually, I'm, I'm, I do want to talk about the one that won the dance award last year, um, which is up there actually. Mm. Um, the you know the my site-specific work is my practice now, so how it's shifted. But I've done it all through the years. So, like, it, it is, it has kind of started, I'd first thing in the 70s and, and then 80s and 90s, and now that's sort of all I do in a way. And yeah. it's interesting how that all shifts. Because I saw you calling up, like, a major musical. Um, we're going to get to the car for questions in a second, yeah, but okay. I'm really interested what the through line is because you've done for so many different, like, I guess, dance aesthetics, how to keep your own aesthetic yeah, yeah. Among so many different mediums. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes, yes. But I'm first, want to talk about you as a dancer because you were got to, you were you know part of the original groups of ADT. How did you get to join ADT? Were you recruited? Did you audition? Um, what was that's the a very like? interesting question. I was doing honors degree in languages, mm. um, in French and Spanish, and um, on my the very first orientation week when the Queen Mother came to open Flinders University. I was a <coughs> foundation student, and Liz Dalman did a performance called Women of Troy and with her company. So the company had already mm-hmm. started ADT. And I went to it. I'd done ballet all my life, but sort of didn't want to be a swan, didn't feel, loved it, loved the music, loved doing it, but it just didn't connect to me as a career. And I was thinking about doing, being a tra- simultaneous translator or whatever. And I went to this performance um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was based on the Women of Troy, but it was an anti-Vietnam War ballet and how women suffer in war, which is really funny how it came full circle 20 years later when I was in Vietnam. But at this time, and I remember watching this piece, it was so powerful. I'd never seen contemporary dance before. It was called Modern Dance then. And I ran out of the theatre sobbing and I thought, if dance can speak to people like that, then it is a worthwhile thing to do. And so because I'd become quite politicised at uni because mm. of the Vietnam War protest, anti-Vietnam War protest, so I saw that it could have such a, a profound effect on people. 
in terms of getting them to think about the world maybe differently or to look more deeply into things. Mm. And it was such a powerful experience. So then I uh, contacted Liz and I started doing classes and then she asked me to join the company and I said, because I trained in ballet all my life and I was picking up the contemporary because I loved it. And um, so I was coming every weekend and at nights and I said, no, 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 I have to finish my degree. So I finished my honours degree and I was offered three PhD scholarships and I took, I said, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going dancing. Well, my parents were like, couldn't believe it, let alone the supervisors or potential supervisors. And I had a scholarship and I did the PhD and I went dancing and after a year I forgot. Like we went, we toured to Asia, we did, I, I worked with fabulous people, the, the folk singers Peter, Paul and Mary came out and we did a concert for them because Liz used her music. We met Duke Ellington, we worked with composers, we were introduced to Peter Skullthorpe, Richard Meal. It was just an extraordinary time and so I forgot about it and then my people were trying to contact me, when are you coming back to your PhD? And I just said, oh, I'm not, I'm a dancer now. And that was <laughs> the beginning of it all and I uh, loved Liz's expansive um, approach because she would work with visual arts. We did works that looked at in John Olson's paintings and, and John Coburn's, and these were quite new artists then. I mean, they're very famous, iconic people now. And we met and worked with and did stuff in galleries and improvised with jazz musicians. Every Thursday night we improvised for three hours. It was just the most liberating thing for me. The thing that I found hard was... My body ached all day, every day for years because it was full on. Like we worked and we were a small company and we toured a lot. And it was just a really wonderful experience. And I, I'm very grateful to Liz because she had that. Uh, she was also um, involved in the tent embassy. So we were, you know, in, we were exposed to the indigenous issues way back then in the 70s. We were exposed to, to Asia because we toured Asia. That's when I fell in love with Asia. So there was a lot of formative years and um, I was always a very strong dancer, so I wasn't a kind of ethereal, <laughs> very, very muscly, very kind of strong. I could jump really high <laughs> like a boy and I, I love that strength and um, I think, yeah, that was the beginning of a really fantastic trajectory and uh, then uh, someone, we had a lot of people come out from New York, including Carol Johnson, who stayed in my apartment <laughs> and taught Graham Technique at, when I was in ADT. We had a lot of people come out, Cliff Coit at, at Franz Vavena from Netherlands Dance Theatre. So I was introduced to this, actually I'm really privileged, this huge... A symphony of movement, yeah, like in so many ways. array of styles, and sometimes my body did get a bit confused, but <laughs> I loved it and I ate it up because there were no tertiary courses then, and so everything was on the hop. So we would travel to go and do class with Netherlands dancers. We'd just get on the drive or get on a train and go go there and have class, do class with the company. And, you know, we just ate everything up. And Was there a particular performance when you're in yes. the company, you go, that it just makes yes. my heart so full? I have one, and that's called Haikyo. It was um, a work by Netherlands Dance Theatre because at one stage... Yap Fleer, who was director of Netherlands Dance Theatre, came out and co-directed ADT and then went on to Dance Company of New South Wales, which became Sydney Dance Company. And that piece was on ropes and it was a piece that had been choreographed for two very famous dancers in Europe, um, Jean Benoit and Arlette van Roven. 
and he decided that we would he would mount this for the Adelaide Festival 76. And the ironic thing about that was at the same time the Australian Ballet was going to do a rope piece called Perisynthian with Gaylene Stock, who was actually not my relative, but we, uh, from that time we used to call each other sis because you know, <laughs> Gaylene Stock and Cheryl Stock. And... Um, but John Meehan did it instead. They had a male instead. So this was a duet with myself and Russell Dumas, who was an extraordinary dancer, you know, Royal Ballet Twilight. Still Art. is. Yes. Still dancing. Yeah. Anyway, he, we, it was the most excruciating thing. It was a duet. It was a 25-minute duet on this nest of ropes that came down. Um, it was so beautiful, the set. It was sent out to the Netherlands Dance Theatre, and I wore Arlette's costume. I felt... Like, this was a gift. This would make me dance much better. Um, it was it was a hard piece. And I remember we had such rope burns on our fingers because we had to do slow coming down ropes and that we just used to dab each other with methylated spirits every night. And, and um, Russell used to make Zavaglioni, the little double boiler, and we'd reward ourselves in the dressing room. We had this little star dressing room. It was very funny because we had to be close to the stage because it was kind of full on and we had to kind of get there. Anyway, so um, that piece really changed the way I thought about choreography, the way that Yarp used the ropes, um, the duet work, and, and Russell's a wonderful partner. Wonderful. He taught me a lot about partnering. Um, he was a very critical person, so, you know, everything had to be right, and, and, and Yarp was the same, and his wife, Willie. Um, what, the other beautiful thing about that, it was had done to a solo flute to a Japanese contemporary score, so it had that spatiality of the Japanese aesthetic. And David McCubbin, who was a very famous flautist, he he wandered through the ropes as we danced. So it was actually, and it was a piece that people remembered, the ABC recorded it, and it was what got me my first travel grant because I suddenly became known, I suppose, and um, which was signed by Gough Whitlam. So this was a really extraordinary time. You know, this girl who'd been a kind of a bookish person and then... Decided to go off dancing. So I've got with them saying this must have been 1975. It was. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, actually, when I came back, I did Haikyuu. Oh, no. Yes. Yes, it was 75 because I came back. That's right. That was the travel grant because when I came back from New York, the dis- I was in the air when the dismissal happened. I was actually flying back from New York. So it was just a horrible homecoming in a way for me. But, yes, yeah, so after that I was cast in Haikyo because I'd gone over. I'd actually done classes with Martha Graham herself, Merce Cunningham himself, you know, Clay Taliaferro from um, Limon. I mean, I had the most privileged ballet class with Finest Young and Larry Rose. These were the great teachers and I had such, it was such a privilege. So for, as a result of having that really intense training, I suppose, um, and Eric Hawkins, who told me that, I had to relax and I was doing, and I was, you could tell I was a Graham dancer because I was too tense and, you know, because they all, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to experience everything, but of course, you know, my body was written with a lot you know, of... There's only so much kinesthetic knowledge yeah, you can absorb as a young know, dancer. It was very funny. But, so I felt very privileged. And when I came back, that's when I was cast in Haikyo, when the art came up, out. So I was very privileged. I think you can be in the right place at the right time. Um... 
and I was so passionate about dance, as we all are, you know. And uh, but I can tell you, I get the pain still comes back, but the euphoria, and you could have heard a pin drop in the audience in those performances. It was, it was magical, and you know, you very rarely in your career, you know, you have good nights and bad nights, but very rarely do you feel that there's something is tra- transcends a normal viewing experience, and actually. My partner at the time said he didn't want to go to anything else because after seeing that he didn't want to see. <laughs> the standard was too high. <laughs> but it was it was a it was transformative for me. It taught me about the the not just the skill of choreography, but the, the actual artistry and the kind of between pragmatic decisions, practical decisions, the knowledge of the of the skills you need, but also the artistry, you know, and how that works. And Haikyo means flying mirror, and um, so I always held that in my head. Um, and now I got into haiku because it was from a haiku. Um, and I remember much later when I was going back to Asia, um, my favourite haiku is clouds now and then. Oh, my God, I've forgotten it. Clouds now and then. Ah. Give relief from moon viewing. So that idea of the liminal and that idea, I didn't know that then. I only knew it instinctively in my body, but much later I understood what the beauty of that work was and it was about the spaces between and the kind of poetry that dance is an abstract form and music together and sort of beautiful abstract set that sort of had so much poetry in it, and I feel so privileged. And what was this, when you started making work, was your first work on ADT? Um, oh, I did bits and pieces mm-hmm. because we have this, you know, they call it a portfolio career, mm-hmm. but we just called it freelance then. So I was doing bits and pieces with schools and, you know, dance schools. But my first piece for ADT, when I came, oh, no, I did do bits and pieces with Liz, but mm. when I came back to ADT in 19... 19- 79, when Jonathan was there, I think it's 98, or 79, I did a piece called En Passant, and I had six incredible dancers, because Jonathan brought these incredible <laughs> dancers out from Rombert, but also there were some fabulous Australian dancers. There were three couples, and it was the first interactive work, so they were, um, this is back in 79, used Philippa Cullen's uh, Theremins. They were flaws in the shape of triangles. I used them as like stepping stones along the diagonal. It was in the Space Theatre in Adelaide. Um, and they were wired up, so old-fashioned now, wired up to a V8 synthesiser and they were pressure flaws. So wow. the sound was produced by the dancers. And this is back in 79. Yeah. So when people got, I think, you know, like I don't say much to people, but I really think I was so privileged being introduced to this. I went to the con and I asked about it and it was... Um, when the dancers were not on the pressure floors because it was a, like a, mm. a, a journey from a, a long diagonal journal. It was a 20-minute work journey. Um, I had a wonderful, again, a flautist that I used, but um, Vanetta uh, Ladsley, she was a female flautist, so who improvised. So it was that was special for me. So that was the work that I mm. remember doing for ADT. 
But it sounds like that that work that you performed it really kind of inspired you to be a maker. Because were you when you were younger, were you going? I want to be a choreographer. You kind of just fell into choreography. But even when I. Even when I was doing ballet, I used to make up little dances all the time, and I used to they were ballet, you know, because <laughs> I only did ballet. Um, but they were, yeah, I used to put on concerts. Actually, it's it's a whole theatre thing because I used to put up concerts. I used to write a play, and we used to make tutus out of old women's weeklies, which was the magazine at the time, <laughs> and they were in the backyard, and we'd charge money and make toffee, sticky toffee, and, and raise money for a charity, you know, like... Um, world famine or, or something like that so this is you know when I was a kid I was doing that all the time so my parents have no idea where this theatricality came from <laughs> no history in my family except that my grandmother was a pianist in London but apart from that there's no mm. no theatre in the family at all so um I guess it was sort of in my blood or something yeah because yeah. it's just um it's just interesting the journey from just kind of just diving in and just making work because you pr- you were performing and then when I get to look at your CV and obviously the sense of career you've had, you really dived into making like you dive in head first. Yeah, I did, I did, and I. But also, I, I think in the early days with ADT, I was there nearly six years, so it's quite a long time, mm. and we're with a lot of different choreographers. We did do improvisation based work. I mean, it was more you were taught the choreography mm. as well, but. As I said, we did the three-hour improvisations every Thursday night with um, a, a jazz ensemble. So I really was used to making movement. Um, and we used to do things um, in galleries. So we did improvise and we did learn how to mm. improvise just by doing. Um, and I guess having so many different, working with so many different choreographers, really different aesthetics. I remember one thing I had with, who was that? Myra Nadell. An academic now. I had to dance on point smoking a cigar, which was very bizarre. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of strange things. People took a lot of risks. Mm. You know, people danced naked. You know, there was not the fuss. I, oh my God, some of the things I did, like going across the top of the museum building in Adelaide, which is, you know, it's got a tiny, tiny edge and just balancing from one leg to another climbed out the window all the way across and back through the next window. I mean, you could never, ever do that now. now. The risk, the risk assessment. It's just, I never thought of, I mean, it's crazy, but I, we didn't think about it. It was like, that's a good idea. That would look beautiful from below, you know? And so that was in another life when I, when I left ADT in 70, oh no, 77 that was, I was in ADT. I left and we did a piece called, um, I joined a group called Community Celebrations, or we made a group, mm. and we did a lot of outdoor stuff. Again, for festivals. So I was from 76, no, 1970 was the first festival I was in, in Adelaide, and I was in nearly every one after that for quite a while. Um, but 1970, Liz did this thing called Time Riders, The Oldest Continent, working with a really interesting um, visual artist, and that was the first time as Dan Astoria Kukowski, who'd been commissioned to do the artwork in the airport, and we worked, um, it was the first time that the music and the light were worked together, so these are really mm. early technology, you know, where the light and the, um, sorry, the light and sound were triggered by each other, so that was really early days, mm. and I guess, you know, and I met John Cage, and you know, I'm, you oh, know, just John Cage, you know, casually, no, no but you know what I mean, yeah. it's just, we were... That was our world, you know, and um, going to New York on two travel grants was, that was probably the most formative things for me and probably affected 
my making without me realising it because mm. I was a full-on dancer in, on both those occasions, but just being exposed um, to those. And also I was very appreciative when a class was what I called dancing. Mm. You know, so Clay used to have these long two-hour classes where, you know... Kate Chan. No, Kay, uh, sorry, um, Clay Taliaferro, yep. black American from Le Mans. And it was just... Amazing, you know, we just end up having it making a dance of like 10 minutes in the class, you know. And so, and same with Larry Rose, and also in Australian Ballet School when I was teaching there, I used to do the boys' classes because I like to jump <laughs> um, when I was teaching contemporary at the Australian Ballet School. And I really, um, I just love the, you know, those teachers who made you feel like you were dancing, like you were doing the technique, but so I really used to try and make my, my own classes dancing. Dancing, not just doing technique, but yeah. Um, so I can see that obviously, as a choreographer, you made such a variety of works. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> crazy. And obviously, you've worked from site specific to inside a theater to also in musicals. Has there always been a through line or something that kind of has shaped what inspired you to choreograph? Or it's usually an idea outside of dance. So I haven't done. I have done some abstract works, but I guess my predilection is more dance theatre or dance that has some kind of conceptual, either a conceptual base or a narrative base. And by that I don't mean telling a story, Mm. but has some kind of um, relationship to the outside world, not in and of itself. So I wasn't a very good postmodern dancer. Um, I was too anxious to uh, kind of have... I guess fairly high energy, but also to to actually make work about things that I felt mattered, and I think that came from my very first experience with Liz, mm. and also working with Kay Tai with the intercultural work that introduced me to intercultural work. You know, they were big issues they were talking about. What is it to be Australian? What is it? What is an identity in Sydney in the eighties? You know, it was very multicultural. I worked with. Um, Torres Strait Islands is indigenous um, Aboriginal dancers, Japanese dancer. You know, we and I didn't think it was unusual. I mean, this is the interesting thing, isn't yeah. it? I did not think it was a thing. It just was. That's where. That's where your practice led you, and that's what yeah. you were passionate about. And then I and I got very interested in. I learned a lot of, you know, the Chinese ribbon dance. I learned the sit down Torres Strait Island dances, and we were just infected with all of this uh, cultural influences that just fed me, I suppose. But in terms of my own work, um, one of the works that was my signature work, oh, that sounds a bit pretentious, but the work that I think people, at least in towns, will remember, was called Ochre Dusk. And I worked with um, Gondwana Land, which was a, a, a very, um, an indigenous band at the time. And that work, I went to Katajuta in Central Australia and I spent two weeks there. And I, it wasn't a work, it wasn't Indigenous dance, it was just about being immersed in the centre of Australia and feeling the power of that. And I became very fascinated with the, the spin effects and the thorny devils, a, a, a ranger caught a little thorny devil for me once and I took it home and then I put it back in the bush you know, to study it and how it moved. And So that work, um, and I had an Indigenous dancer at the time, um, Bernadette Wallon, and she was with the company for five years, so Ochre Dusk was special to me. Um, it was designed by Michael Pierce, and that we just kept remounting that because people found it quite 
very Australian, and overseas they really found it quite fascinating. But it was the work, I think, where I really embedded myself, not just in the studio with movement, but I walked and walked and walked for hours through Katajuta every day. And it kind of seeped into my soul or something. So that was quite special for me. And I'm going back to Uluru in October, mm. taking some friends. So for some of our listeners that aren't familiar with the work, did you go through a site-specific process walking through a specific area? Can we? Oh, in my site-specific this? work, yes. I owe um, a big uh, tribute to Marilyn Wood, who is a New York. She was one of Cunningham's original, original dancers, four of them in a truck mm. in the 50s. She's unfortunately died a few years ago. She was brought out for the 70, I'm getting my dates mixed up about when I did Haikyo. That was 74, I think, for the 76th festival. We have to check the dates. <laughs> it's all good. Um, she brought, she came out, and I was tasked because ADT had no director then. It was this interim mm. period after Liz went. And so I formed together a group, and we called ourselves Community Celebrate, or she called it the Celebrations Group, and she it, and she taught us a process called scoring the site. It was really, and I've used that and adapted that. Mm. That was like a oh, long time ago now, 40 years ago. Yes. Um, and I've adapted that ever since, and I used it in my last work, in which won the Dance Award. Um, it's this process where you really immerse yourself in the site. It could be an indoor site. It could be a cityscape. It could be a building. It could be expansive outdoor, you know, sweeping plains or near the ocean, could be anything. But this process is just to immerse yourself in the site and listen and look and be there. And through that, that's how the work evolves. So people say, often say to me, and I also teach the directing students here at NIDA, how do you make a work for nothing? And I always tell them about a site-specific work, that it comes from the site. The site mm. choreographs you. So I guess in terms of my eclectic <laughs> styles over the years, um, that's determined sort of by the side. Of course you have your movement. Yes, of course. You, but I use the dancers. I don't I, – I would say I don't choreograph anymore. I would say I direct the dancers. But also I feel like you're scoring the site of their bodies because you want yes, to choreograph to the bodies. Yes. It's not only you're choreographing the, with the There's venue a, per se and the, no, with the inanimate no. object. It's also with the dancers mm. you're blessed to have uh, yes, for that particular absolutely. project. And it's about – and I did a piece called Accented Body, uh, which was a really big piece in 2006, which was had 11 interactive screens. But that was in the cult creative industries precinct in Brisbane and beyond out into the street and park. And that was um, about the body inside and the body as side. So that's fascinated me a lot in the last 20 years. I've really spent a lot of time thinking And where about do you that. feel that the body... Insight and as sight. Did that start when you're through your time in Sydney? Is there like a moment? I think probably, though I wouldn't have realised it then, it probably started back when I was working with Marilyn Wood. Though I never thought about yeah. it as embodiment then. That came later and probably came more when I was doing a lot of choreography and also commissioning choreographers, working with composers. I was thinking much more about... Um, the idea of sight within the body and outside the body and the relationship of the two. So I guess that, and that became a, a big research project, actually. It was a two-year project. I worked with 
I had six sites and I worked with interactive musicians and visual artists and um, or design artists and dancers and, and we that was over two years we designed that and that had um, presences in Seoul and London. So it was a kind of a, quite an early work, um, not streamed but through data coding passing. Data coding, wow. That's still complicated. Yeah, but I don't understand it. Yeah. That I just I've worked with fantastic technology people. All the people at QUT, all the, all the computer. I called them my computer angels. They were excited because at the time it was cutting edge technology. It's not now, but it was. So there was something there. I'm not. I'm a bit of a luddite actually. But from those early days, I'm fascinated by how we can work with not only each other, I'm very people-centred, so the most mm. important thing to me is human relationships. And I suppose, going back to your former question, that is what my works are about, the human Whether human it's politicised, whether it's between two bodies in yeah, a bare space. whether it's to do with um, the virtual body and the, and, the, and the real body. You know, so it is, about, it is about people and relationships, and that's, I guess, drives me. Those are the ideas that drive me. Um, and in Vietnam... The works I did there, I really went into the, the traditions of Vietnam and also what was happening in terms of the changes there. Um, yeah, and, and I was really fascinated because you have a very particular practice. Then you get to Sydney from, from my research and you can see that there's a cultural dialogue that's shifting within Yes, that was your with practice. Thai, yes. Thai, yes. Are there any particular experience that come to mind or a, a dancer that you mentored either in here or in Vietnam that really kind of... Fueled your fire. Oh, there's so many wonderful dancers that I feel I learned as much from them as they learned from me, seriously. But I guess some of the dancers I've worked with that I feel still very close to, either in Dance North or like Kate Champion and um, Chaba Boudet, um, and then, of course, the Vietnamese dancer I brought out, who's now the director of the ballet company in Hanoi. Um... But um, also choreographers I was able to give some opportunities to, uh, like the early days of uh, Natalie Weir. But I guess someone that I feel, it's funny, there's so many, it's just blurring in front of me, Mm. all these people. I guess um, seeing Bernadette Wallong grow and develop and then, you know, um, and did you work with Burns at Solely in your forming of Dance North, or did you get yeah, to work yeah, with her in one extra? For five years. No, no, one extra. She's too young to put in there. <laughs> when I was rehearsal director of one extra, and, and I was swing girl, so I often danced, you know, because. Mm. And Kay Ty often didn't want to go on tour, so I took the company out. I worked with a person called Aku Kadoga, who's a black American, who worked in NASA for a long time, and I've just actually caught up with her in the last few weeks. She was a great friend and mentor of mine, and um, not really the kind of friends, and I remember when she came, first came, she was in a show called For Coloured Girls When Only the Rainbow is Enough. It was a very powerful work in New York on Broadway. She was quite very young, and so was I, and she came and watched me teach a class, the VCA, and she came and she said, girl, you dance like a black person. And I went, what? <laughs> and it was like we had this connection, and then we worked on One Man's Rice with Kay Ty. We had a little bit role, but there were, oh, look, there were such beautiful dancers there, Sylvia Blanco and um, Carl Morrow, who's since passed away, sadly, um, Susan 
styling, I think. There were just such beautiful dancers in that company. Um, oh, actually, she just wrote to me yesterday, Julie Shanahan, who then went and joined Pina Bausch, so she was in the company when I was there. So there's a big toing and froing between Europe, Asia and Australia, I suppose, the main mm. continents that I keep crossing my paths. And because I speak French, I've done some work in France and danced in Paris. But I I guess in terms of people I've mentored, I don't I've had, all... I've had people that I've been, I've been asked to mentor that I've done, but it's more people who I feel have come on a creative journey with me and there are people that I use, I have used over time and so, um, or their work I've followed over time. So I guess um, people like Kate Sue Healy, I'm very close to and I commissioned her when she was a young choreographer mm. and I really love her integrity and um, the way she crosses generations. So I guess... I feel as much mentored by them, even though they're younger than I mentor them. But I think we we have this mutual... But I think that's a true mentorship. You actually learn yes. from each other. That's the reason yeah. why you want to invest yeah. in that relationship. Yeah, and I think it uh, happens over time. I really believe a mentorship can't be just a thing that's set up and you you know come to a few sessions and then you give advice and go. I think it is something that does grow over time and people, you trust each other. And so you can be honest with each other about how you see the world and the work and how things are shaping up. I think that's a very special. And I guess my other great privilege, and I made this a condition <laughs> when I was artistic director at Dance North, I didn't want royalties, I didn't want to get paid for my choreography. I just wanted to work with a composer every, every work that I made. So I made one major work a year and I worked with fabulous composers, David Chesworth and Paul Charlier. And that, that's a joy for me because then these two different languages come together and conceptually are one. And that's that stayed with me with all my site-specific work. So recently I've worked with a Malaysian composer, Wunderkind, community person, trained classical musician, uh, Chul Guan, and we've done a few site-specific works together. And again, that thing of listening to, for him, listening to the site, the sounds from the site, and then composing through that. It's been, a, I've learned a lot from mm. that. He hasn't, I haven't said to him, go and do scoring the site. It's what he does instinctively when we do a site-specific. But I think also, like, you are kind of site-specific sonically. I know yes. it's very esoteric yeah, to yes, say, no, but that, that, there's that, another layer. You mm. are kind of having this that impulse you felt on a Thursday night. You're now feeling that gut to this composer, and it's yes. another layer, and it's just feeding more and more information. Yeah. So I, I love working with composers and visual artists. I've had great privilege of working with John Coburn, who designed my one of my children's shows. Um, and uh, and when I was in Townsville, although I did bring designers up, some terrific designers. Um, I often work with visual artists, and there's really fantastic visual artists who were really firing in the 80s and 90s in Townsville, and I'm still in contact with them, and um, they've done some beautiful designs for our work. And you've worked across so many states, and I'm going to really, I'm interested for you to share with our listeners, what do you feel is the aesthetic of each state in the oh. Australian city, which is which is a really interesting question because oh, every, everyone's has moved. But I think for you, for yourself, because you've been you were you weren't based in Queensland until you went to Townsville, correct? No, that's right. So how you went there, and you literally have basically have a bare space. 
to create your own aesthetic. That was that was a real privilege. People say to me, "How can you move from Sydney and go up to Townsville?" It was like it was like being liberated. You know, I didn't have to be a slave to any fashion. I wasn't going to be judged because I wasn't doing what was considered On the latest or- thing. And um, also, I was surrounded by this community who embraced us all, all the dancers, because we were the only professional artists there, um, apart from visual artists and some musicians. And so we just, I felt like Townsville gave me such a great gift, and I think my best works were done when I was director of Dance North, because I felt, and I also felt the audience were really honest. So I did a work called Moon of Our Own, and... um, it was kind of crazy. I had Nettie howling at the moon and I worked with a composer and I worked with a wonderful visual artist, Onika Silver. And I remember we were performing in air and we'd always have the supper afterwards, you know, when you talk to the audience. And, and I saw this person standing in the foyer away from the others and, wow, he just doesn't look like someone, excuse me, who goes to the theatre. So I went up and said, oh, hello, and, and you come? He went, oh, first time I've been. And he was a farmer. I don't know why he came. I think. Oh, I think I do know why he came. He liked because the whole season was called a moon of our own, but my work was also called a moon of our own. And I said, "Oh, so what did you think of, of, the, of the work?" You know, and I always loved him because I was so honest. These people. He said, oh, "I really like the moon one." I said, "Oh, really?" Because it was the most esoteric one. <laughs> I said, "Oh, why is that?" He said, "I know that moon." I was. I nearly cried. Because from someone who was not a dancer at all, he could feel that you... Something, yeah, with the dancers and the score. and I know that moon. And another beautiful story from Dance North, and I guess it's why you do keep making work if you think that it does make a difference, and teach, was um, we were in Cloncurry. It's a tiny little dusty outback place in in the middle of western Queensland, and we went um, and we, we had this thing called an integrated residency format and it was what Dance North really pioneered and that was we'd go into a town, no matter how small, we'd set up and we had three programs, a primary school program, especially choreographed, not bits and pieces, a secondary school program, which the dancers usually choreographed about current issues, and our evening repertoire, whatever that was. So we didn't dumb it down or anything like that. And then during the week we gave workshops. So I'd talks at Rotary and seven in the morning and we built up huge audiences we had big audiences because it was all and they would wait for us to come back excuse me Mm -hmm. and so when this particular time we're exhausted and bumped out two o'clock in the morning and I remember that particular time in Cloncurry someone had rode their ridden their horse to the show so they tethered it up outside on them horse doing there. <laughs> it was great because we people would take a sheep farming on that, uh, sheep shearing, we'd see the sheep shearing on our day off. Like we had an exposure to life that most dancers actually don't And also have. it has like very organic community engagement. I feel, yeah. not to be specific, but when you go, when a lot of people do community engagement now with, you know, the major companies, it's it's kind of like a package. You come yes. with a, yes. it, and because you had that privilege at the time to really customize yes. it. Well, and it really what, makes a difference. And It, it gets, does. Yeah. And what we did in Cloncurry we taught every school child from five years old right through to 16 and they are 17 and there were a lot of Indigenous kids then and they loved it because they felt they could excel, you know. And so I noticed this guy in the corner, he was the cleaner, and he'd often stop on his broom and he'd watch. And I thought, 
it's interesting that he's interested, you know, and I didn't think anything more of it. And when we were, when we were bumping out the final night in Cloncurry and the next morning I was exhausted and then we had these little dongers we stayed in, this, you know, those funny motels <laughs> that go out, you know, to, almost into the street. And there was a knock on the door and I thought, oh, no. And I was so bleary-eyed and I had my, you know, nighty on and I opened the door and there were two guys there and I thought, oh, my God. And he said, oh, we just want to thank you what you did for all the, what, what you've done for all the kids in Cloncurry. I said, oh, that's lovely of him. He had, they'd gone out um, panning gold and they had brought me a vial of gold dust. And oh. this was the cleaner? Yes. That's why you do it. That, to me, all the accolades, all the, you know, whatever, all the wonderful full houses and standing ovations, that pales into insignificance with that moment. And do you still have that vial at home? I do, but I don't know where I put it. (laughs) It's somewhere hidden in Brisbane, yeah. And I think that's something really interesting, especially because you've taught community and industry, and you've taught so many classes, probably almost a million classes in your lifetime, but... Maybe not a million, I would say maybe six no, digits. No, not quite. I don't think so. <laughs> so many classes. I'm thinking, um, sorry to hyperbolize, but when you've taught in the communities and you've taught like at ABS, what are the ways you kind of shift the class? Because I feel with a lot of community dance, yeah. you get there and you have to actually get them up and moving. Yes. How did you get them really engaged? Um, for the community, oh, ABS was a technique. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Oh, you're fine. Well, this terrible sinus thing. Um... I think with the community engagement, I would, we would look at what people were interested in. That would often be based around some storytelling or, or, or there'd be games or there'd be trust games. We'd work it so that there were things they knew how to do and then we would build it up. And then, I, you know, I often taught a class class, but I would try and introduce it in a way, and lots of people do this. Mm. Um, and I guess it was based on, the technique was based on release work, but but the community engagement work, I like now, especially now, especially if it's going to become a site-specific work and you sort of do movement with them, is actually to build on an idea and get them to do the movement of that idea and then you can add skills within that. And i found that that engages people. Um, and, of course, also I think you have to adapt to what they want to do. So... Obviously, with a lot of the Indigenous communities, they wanted to do, do rap and hip-hop, you know, and that's good, you know, like, and get them to show me and then we'd work out how we could make it into a little dance and because it was always solo. and mm. So try and work with what they were into, I suppose. Because I found that interesting, for example, when I got to speak with Carol, she was saying when she worked in Redford in 1972, she had to go backwards. She had to do the big flash routine. Yes. And then everyone would start getting up and, oh, I'm, I'm going to look now. And I find that really interesting, and mm. I think each of you will have, each of the five of you will have some specific ways you kind of got people up and moving. Oh, I, um, did, which, I did, and I also yeah. did the thing like the jazz classes. I just teach a straight jazz class. You know, I do that <laughs> as well. And musicals, it's really funny about me choreographing musicals because, well, I was a Kit Kat girl in, um, oh, God, Cabaret, in the musical Cabaret. But um, for a nanosecond, well, for about six weeks, and then I got bored. But that was in what city was that? I was in Adelaide. What happened was that uh, Jason, it was a J.C. Williamson production. It was a you know touring Australia, and 
um, they, um, all the dancers in Sydney, a lot of the dancers in Sydney had gone on strike because they hadn't been paid for a few weeks. It was a very big industrial thing. And it was, uh, it was you know, commercial production, big commercial production. So I was in her, His Majesty's in Adelaide. And we'd just come back from Asia, the, uh, the ADT, and we had no money. <laughs> and Lizard Mortgage had taken a second mortgage out in her house to pay for the tour, and we came back. We didn't have a salary. So the girls in the company, they said, oh, they rang, they said, we're looking for um, four women to be, ca- you know, to be in cabaret. And I can't sing to save my soul. I am really bad singer. <laughs> yeah, you're not the so, only one. Me too. And so we came in and they taught us a routine and we were fine with the dance, you know, doing the, did the can-can and all that stuff. Um, but the singing, I was woeful. And I can remember singing the song Fatherland and it was in harmony and when it got to the top note, I knew I'd blow, blow it, so I just kept quiet. <laughs> just a little lip sync. Yeah, but, you know, that was a really good experience for me to do a musical, like just six weeks, eight shows a day, a week, eight shows a week, musical. was I. That was a whole different world. And then I kind of understood certain things about the parameters of the musical and the choreography within mm. the musical. And um, So then when I was asked to do... Um, Beach Blanket Tempest, um, and I was working with actors who couldn't dance, so it was this, <laughs> I could sing and act but not dance, whereas I could dance but not act and sing. Um, that was really, I really enjoyed that. And then Robin Nevin asked me to do Summer Rain, which was really a great experience working with Billy Brown and all those things. And do you feel when you have a, working with a performer that dances not their forte will use that euphemism, would you mainly just guide them in space or would you try no, to... No, no, because they were musicals. They had yeah. to dance. So I can remember Billy Brown. He was so sweet. Every night before summer rain, he would grab me by the hand. Say, he, he, I'd come to his dressing room and say, you know, chookers, chookers. He'd say, oh, Cheryl, just come out on stage with me. I just need to go through the routine. It was just a little soft shoe shuffle. <laughs> i say... Billy, you know this back to front. No, 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 I'm really nervous. So I would every night before the show, I would hold his hand and go through. And a soft shoe, as in it was soft, or did you have taps on them? No, that was a soft shoe. Yeah. I can't tap to save myself. <laughs> I fake it sometimes. I have faked it in the show, but I was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I didn't do all that stuff that kids do, you know, tap and jazz, and I never did that. But I find it very interesting because I feel like, maybe this has been my personal opinion, but I think... In Australia now, you have a contemporary stream and you have your musical stream. So I think it's mm. interesting for you as a contemporary dance pioneer, you didn't see the kind of polarized divide. No. You kind of just... Well, it's called necessity. Yeah. You know, I had to... I've never... Actually, that's an interesting point. I have never done any other paid work except to do with dance or theatre. Mm. And because... I won't say I wasn't fussy, but if someone in a high school and I needed some money, I need to pay the rent, say... You know, we've got these, you know, 15-year-old boys that have to do movement after school. And, you know, I knew they were going to be throwing chairs around. I would just do it because I kind of felt I was on a bit of a mission. Yeah. And I had a passion and I, you know, I wouldn't say I enjoyed every job that I did. I, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't say I liked every piece I danced. <laughs> but, you you know, I, I think, I think, you, you know, when I was when I first started dancing, it was a huge divide between ballet and contemporary. There was like it was like mm. a schism, and I think a lot of us brought that together because a lot of us had trained. Some of us had trained as ballet dancers, some of us just trained as contemporary. But 
I think that over time, um, I just always found, like when I taught at the Australian Ballet School, I always found I was always welcome. Um, so personally, I didn't find that antagonism, though I knew it was there mm. big time. It was there big time. But I personally didn't feel it, and I think it was because I have a bit of an eclectic nature. Mm. So I kind of have grab grab bag of things that I can draw on and do, and, and I'm not afraid to do them. I mean, of course, I get nervous, but I'm doing the musical. I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> what am I going to do with this? But then, you know, you look at clips, and I looked at Anna Fumicello and Beach Blanket Bingo, and, I, you know, I just went immerse myself in the genre, and then you kind of find a way to use that vocabulary and make it your own, and I guess that's what I did. I mean, one of the most memorable works I've did was called Women's War Two. Was about World War Two, and it was the fiftieth anniversary. I think fifty. I'm coming. Anyway, the Battle of the Coral Sea. Yeah, it would have been fifty. Ninety two, and learning the jitterbug, and then working with the army guys. And was this on a particular company? At Dance North. Yes. Yeah, we did, and we toured a lot. We took it to the Lyric here in Brisbane, and we toured a lot. Um, and we, you know, had to learn like what the real jitterbug was. My God, looking at those old films. They were incredible what they did. I mean, we're trying to do some of those lifts and things, and it was hard. So, and also, I met lots of old, older people who were there during the war, and they we went to old time dances and learned how they did their ballroom dancing then, or their you know their dances, social dances. Went to the army, who showed us how they marched and the different salutes because it's all changed. And then I did another work on ropes called. Um, what I called it, but that was about the destruction of the rainforest. So it really was inspired by Haikyo, <coughs> but um, Kim Carpenter did the set, and I got the army to train us all, all the dancers and myself. So we went out and did the whole obstacle course with the, and you know, with the rope climbing. That so, and they'd come and check the knots for us, and and then they'd come to the show, and they became really great. Friends and, and what an interesting full circle having the work that inspired you as a dancer, and then taking the context of Townsville, everything you're going through, yes. and then kind of yeah. not remounting, but kind of morphing it into yeah. another. It was yeah, it was very different work, and yeah. you know, different style by then. You mm. know, moved away from modern dance into much more contemporary. But um, and that was a that was a wonderful experience, and the army guys were fantastic, and they were so patient with us, and it was hard that obstacle course. And I thought, well. If I'm asking the dancers to do it, I have to do it. So I did. But one time you have to climb up and then flip over so you go underneath and then you cross across a, a, it was a muddy ditch. It was horrible, all grey mud. And then you have to um, be doing the uh, manoeuvring from underneath the rope. So you climb up the rope, then you flip, and then you go along holding from underneath. Well, I flipped 360 and fell into <laughs> fell into the mud and on my, on my language, the army guys couldn't believe it. They were like, and then the dancers were laughing. They were really laughing at me. And so it was very funny. And I came out like the mud man from New Guinea, you know, like I was. <laughs> but I think it sounds like from all of your practice, you really are, you really don't let fear control you. You really just dive in, I in try, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, I try. And I kind of want to go to a loaded, it's a very loaded question right. that you just kind of popped in there. And you said, we are going to modern dance in the intercontemporary. 
And I'm curious, in, I know it's a very hard opinion in your opinion, when did you feel it was shifted from modern dance to contemporary dance? But I kind of just want to slightly open that Pandora's yeah, box. Yeah, that's interesting. I think modern dance for me were the early pioneers, so they were, um, and they were very different. They didn't mm. have the same style. Um, but, you know, Merce Cunningham, you know, that first wave, I suppose, and then maybe the second wave, um, so through the Eurico with the, and the Graham Company and then the, 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 the great dancers from Cunningham. But then postmodernism came in and I, or didn't, it was, no, it was their parallel actually, mm. you know, with um, contact improvisation. But my background was really modern. So when I went to New York, I would take Dude, those modern, classes, yeah. you know, with those people. But I also uh, knew about postmodernism and I was very interested and I think that and I saw a lot of postmodern work when I was in New York, so I didn't necessarily go and do classes in contact info, but I, I saw a lot of that work. And so I was very interested. It was so different. It wasn't my aesthetic and it wasn't my... It didn't make me feel particularly engaged, but I was fascinated by the conceptual aspect of it. And um, so I suppose that's when... And that's when then all looked in after that the whole release work came in and I loved that. Which I suppose if you look at a lineage came from Doris Humphrey mm-hmm. through Jose Lamont, Clay Taliaferro. But that was the work that made me feel comfortable. Um, I love the Graham, I love the strength of the Graham, I love the core strength of the Graham and I that was kind of suited my body very well. Um, but I also found liberation in release techniques. So as a maker, did you feel the release technique really kind of went into your aesthetic and dance Yeah, realm? yeah. But I think I always had that strong core. It didn't look like Graham technique. I wasn't mm. doing Graham technique, but I think it it, it was always, it's always, it's always there. I mean, I don't really dance anymore. But I remember when I was teaching the ballet school and I was teaching Graham technique at the ballet school, and I shared a dressing room with Lucette Aldous, who was also teaching at the ballet school. And I would go and do her floor bar. And a lot of the things the dancers found really difficult to do with the floor bar, which was core strength, mm. pelvic strength. Um, and also being aware of your lumbar curve yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And I was found, you know, I was quite strong in that. And Lucette was saying, look at Cheryl. And then I thought, why is this? And then it was, I realised it was the strength of the grand technique and the fact that it had come from that you know, that real core centre, everything radiating from the core. And even though it had a particular aesthetic, obviously. And um, years later, I met quite a few dancers who had become, you know, uh, soloists and principals who said to me, you know, it helped with my... It, we hated the, the technique at the time. We loved you, but we hated the technique. But she said it really helped our point work. And a lot of us have talked about that. Because mm. what it did, I mean, now, of course, there's a whole different and whole semantics. Side, yeah. And so they, they get that in other ways. But at the time, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there was a kind of softness there. Now, even when you do release work, of course, you know, you, you know people do Pilates, they do mm. um, other somatic um, practices, they do Tai Chi, so the core is very strong. But then, you know, when people threw away the core of the Graham or the Cunningham where you needed to have that for the different quirky ways they moved. Um, it release was quite floppy and now it's quite, um, it has a technique to it, even though it's very, still very mm. released. So I found, so in terms of embodiment, I discovered a lot about my body and I stopped dancing for a few years and then went back into it. And when I was teaching, I discovered a lot uh, about 
my own dancing and then I felt I could really help others by mm-hmm. knowing what bad habits I'd got into and um, how they weren't helpful, not bad, unhelpful. Um, so I felt like when I went back in my mid-30s to dance again that I had better technique than before. And think it resonated in your body, yeah. It was through teaching and being thoughtful, the thinking body. And, in fact, when I was head of dance at QUT, I, we coined training the thinking body. That was our motto because I felt like, you know, if you didn't have the mind and body working together well, as we know now. Yeah. Before we get into the thinking body and all of the wonderful you've done at work as a teacher, I do want to discuss the kind of full circle when you got to work with Liz with that work in 1995 because we touched on her oh, earlier yes. before we free and I just how it that interesting full cycle of things for someone to introduce you to contemporary dance and almost oh, 20 was, years later that was special so it all happened because they used to have these things called the Australian choreographic workshop Australian New Zealand choreographic workshop and this particular year was Jean-Claude Galotta who's a choreographer in France and he was the director of that that year and he decided he wouldn't work with choreographers and dancers he would just work with the artistic directors of the company at the time and they would have to do a solo it was really it was really confronting um i just had i've been i was recovering from a, a fairly severe car accident so you know i wasn't dancing anymore and it was Lee Warren and Chrissy Parrott and Gideon was the youngest and Sue Healy and me and, uh, oh, you know, it was an interesting group of people. And we all had to do these solos and he took us through this process. And Jim Hughes was there and he was director of field work, so he was more of a, a theatre director. And he said to me afterwards, I want to do a solo on you. I said, oh, oh I don't think so. <laughs> and then he said, no, I have this idea of working with older women. And I was the youngest of the older women then, so I was 46. Liz, I think Lucette was in her 50s and Liz was in her 60s. And we all went to Perth. And it was the most wonderful experience. And it really it did um, affect my choreographic career because what he asked us to do, well, I'm not sure what he asked everyone, the other two to do, but what he asked me to do was to remember works I had been in. But I couldn't remember exact steps because I've been so many and they're all so different. Mm. And so he asked me to dance, he asked me to replicate the feeling of these works. So not to recreate them at all, but to dance the feeling that I remembered from those works. So it was like delving right back into body memory and coming up with the kind of traces or essences. The essence of the work, yeah. And that's how he worked. And we worked every day for five weeks. And it, it was the most incredible experience for me. And I think for Lucette and Liz, they were three very different works. And then they brought us together at the end. Jim brought us together at the end and we danced together. And that was a little bit twee, I think. But it was so beautiful to dance with those other mm. two women. It was absolutely inspiring. I loved every minute of it. And it's a pity it was supposed to tour, but the money fell through. But it really, it was kind of gruelling because we were all doing a 25-minute silo each full on. Um, and mine was, of course, actually, I was on a rope. <laughs> oh, now I think about it. I was in a ladder, a rope ladder, mm. and I came down a rope ladder, and then I crawled amongst these 
we got them from the anatomy department, all these um, bones from anatomy bones because of my accident where I crushed a lot of my bones. You know, so it was, it was about my accident, but it wasn't about my accident, so it was very abstracted. Mm. But I, it was about essences. Again, it's about, like, what, what was that thing that I went through? And it was quite shocking. And I remember with my head, uh, um, there was a rolled-up piece of black cloth. And as on my head, I crawled along the front of the stage, pushing it with my head. And as it unraveled, all the bones came out. It was quite powerful. And I also wrote a script. So I've always, I've always written. So that was so that was a piece, I suppose, after Haikyo, I feel most... Uh, it's most special for me. Mm. An emotional significance, yeah. Yeah. And my partner, who's still my partner of 30 years, found it very moving because he'd lived through the accident with me and Mm. he thought it was one of my best works, which was interesting because I wouldn't have seen... I can't see it. When you're in it, you can't see it. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, But, yeah, no, so that was... was a long time later, you know, that I... But also, you would have felt such a beautiful circle getting to coexist with Liz again in that performance. Oh, it performance was great. We had, so, we had such a lovely time. And also, with the re, you know, reconnect with uh, Lucette because we taught at the ballet school all those years ago and then Liz. So, and I, I see... I haven't seen Lucette so much, but I see Liz quite a lot. And she's still performing. She's performing all around the world. Performing next week in Sydney? Yes, I know. I'm going. <laughs> Day before I go to... I'm going back to Vietnam next week too. And then there's, and there's a couple of circles I want to discuss. We've kind of been slightly alienier, forgive me. But Sorry, no, I'm no, me. I'm very rhizomic. No, it's fine. <laughs> we have our listeners. I don't even know the word rhizomic. Um, um, sort of. Oh, that's yeah. a new word today. Um, but I kind of want to discuss the full circle of you kind of being a political student and then getting to kind of create a very politicized practice when you get to go to Vietnam and Asia and how they kind of shaped oh, yeah. the artist and facilitator you are today. What led you to that first trip to Asia? How did that get initiated? Oh, that was interesting. We were the, it was 1988, so it's bicentennial year. Here I was born. Oh, right. <laughs> significant. Um, a dangerous uh, concept now, but at the time, you know, it was the bicentennial. So I, um, Australian Department of Foreign Affairs invited Dance North to be, they did a, uh, had a program called Australia to the World and the World to Australia. So there was kind of exchanges, cultural exchanges. And we were asked to be the King of Thailand's, the Australian government's gift to the King of Thailand for his 60th birthday, which is very significant in the Ramayana. Mm. So there was a big festival on, the Ramayana Festival that went for a long time in Bangkok, but also there was a a small, um, if you like, international, very small international festival. And the other companies were Royal Ballet, Bolshoi, can't remember the third one, and us, Dance North. So it was, we were the only contemporary companies. I was kind of amazing. In fact, we about borrowed the Bolshoi's floor because we didn't have enough money to bring the Tarket over. And so that was an um, interesting experience, and that's when we commissioned a work called Sun Hunters, which is the one with the robes, and um, and another two works. Um, and I was danced in one passenger, which was done by Kim Carpenter, the designer, but also Aku choreographed it so you know these full circles these these people come back into your life and so we went to Vietnam and it was a very that was one of the places we went to to Laos well actually there was horrible political events happened in Burma now Myanmar we had to couldn't go there but Kathy Quinn and I went and taught at the international school but it was quite dangerous and we had to leave and I don't 
but no, now it was, was the time when they, the rebels came in and shot everyone in the hospital. It's horrible. And so I don't know what happened to my friends there, but I was staying in the embassy. And was So, I mean, I had a lot of adventures like that. Yeah. I, won't, I won't digress. But, <laughs> well, I am digressing. So anyway. But it's all beautiful digression. It's all worth it. So I went to Vietnam. We went to Vietnam, the company, and the company didn't really like it much at all. It was, it, all I can say, it was like it had no colour. Everyone had the army, you know, the, the male sort of suits, and the, well, not quite, but similar. There was very little electricity. The theatre we were in, which was built by the Russians, just was so in disrepair. Nobody wanted to do anything. It was that real communist thing. Now, this was a big shock to me because, you know, I had fought against... I had been in protests against the Vietnam War and I was very nervous about going to Vietnam because I thought they're going to hate us, the Australians, when we fought against them and, you know. Um, but it wasn't like that at all. They loved the Australians. They had a lot of respect for the Australians. Um, and I just loved it and I kept trying to escape because we had minders all the time because it was heavily communist mm. still. Um, but And I met up with some artists and... We gave a workshop, and they loved our performance because they'd never seen contemporary dance. They'd only had the Russian and Eastern, um, Eastern European companies come in, and anything modern was like contemporary ballet. So it was, yeah. it was quite old-fashioned and quite Marxist in aesthetics. Um, so they loved the work, and so as a result of that, um, they asked me, I don't know why they trusted me, to come over and make a work. And um, with the, the Hanoi Ballet, the Vietnam National Ballet Company, who were beautifully trained, but so sad because they, you know, they they was actually hungry. So I would get cross with them because they got tired all the time. They'd sit down, and some of them would go to sleep, and I'd be really angry. And I only realised afterwards they had like three jobs on the black market, and they were there all day every day. But they were so tired all the time because they were hungry. So whenever I used to come out and choreograph for them, which was a lot in the end over the last yeah. over that ten years, they would get paid double, which was still nothing. But you know, because they had to work hard for me, yeah. but because I didn't understand that they that they had another life if they could not survive unless their family um, worked in the markets on the black market or you know imported motor, motorbikes or whatever they did, that was how they actually fed their family and ate and. So it was a very big shock to me, but I found the people were so beautiful and they protected me and I knew I was being followed around and um, I couldn't go to their homes and, um, you know, it was very restricted. But when we were in the studio, it wasn't. You know, it was just like any studio. And, and can you imagine a ballet company, a national ballet company, doing contemporary dance class every day for three weeks and never complaining? <laughs> Like, no, everyone you know, place. so this is my yeah. great love of Vietnam. But the dancers were such wonderful people, my translator, the musicians I work with. So I went back and forth and it really changed. Actually, it changed the way I thought about the world. I realised that aesthetics is personal, cultural, political. You know, there is no this is good, this is better, this is best, this is bad. I started to understand that we're all, that everything was about context. So what I thought was Vietnamese kitsch pop music, I might still a bit think that, but I actually could appreciate it. You know, so it was learning to look through other eyes. It was learning mm. to look through the eyes of the other and, 
you can't do that unless you're dumped in a place, you're the only person there, you don't speak Vietnamese, even though I tried to learn it over many years, I spoke a bit. You, you are, it's like what migrants go through when they come to a country where they don't understand what, what the culture is, what, that body language is not universal. Um, words don't translate the context. They might translate mm. a literal meaning. So all of those things made me look at the world and go, oh, my God, I know nothing, and I'm also really prejudiced. I wouldn't say, like, I was felt like I was racially prejudiced, but that I was... I made judgments about, without realising, about a hierarchy of cultures. And it's a totally subconscious level. Of course it is, you know, yeah. and we all do it. So it, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, that I'm completely immune from that now, but I'm more sensitised to it and I try mm. and look at... So I found a lot of the traditional Vietnamese dance was just so much detail and I found it sort of soporific because of the slowness and the kind of you know, sameness, not of the movements, which were very intricate, but I didn't know how to read them. And often it's a language, it's a language in movement. Yeah. Um, so I learn a lot about Asian culture in general because I also spent a lot of time in other countries after that. But especially in Vietnam, and I learned, they kept saying to me, I mean, you have to be smooth, you have to be flexible. It's a beautiful word, it's metaphoric and Literal. What is the word again? Mem. Memzoi. It's like you have to be soft, you have to be flexible. So metaphorically it means you have to adapt, you have to take maybe a circuitous mm. way around, whereas I'm a really direct person. And that you have to actually, it's like the bamboo in the wind, which is a cliche, but it really is about, so I didn't, don't think I've been very good at that lesson, but I'm very aware of that at Mems, Memzoi, and when one, we had one big, really big show in Vietnam, it was at the Opera House, which is a re, in Hanoi, which is a replica of the Paris Opera House, but it was before it had been done up. It's beautiful now, but it was just kind of a bit of a wreck, mm. but still beautiful building. And we had I'd worked with um, two other Australian, uh, Asian Australian choreographers had come out. Michael Pierce had come out as designer. Um, Sarah de Jong had come out as composer. We worked with a Vietnamese composer. We were working with the, the orchestra, the national orchestra, and with the traditional orchestra, which the traditional ensemble, which was very famous and went all over the world. It was top one, in, obviously, in Vietnam. So I was working with a lot of forces. I was working with um, singers, and, you know, it was a big production. And when it came to a dress rehearsal, and bringing all the forces together was quite you know, daunting, when it came to dress rehearsal, I was just, I was so happy with it. So I said to the dancers, well, we don't need to rehearse tomorrow. We'll just um, do, do a warm-up and I'll give notes. So I came in like about 5 o'clock for an 8 o'clock show. And this is, this is very typical of kind of the Asian culture, which I thought I understood but hadn't really. <clears throat> and one of them pulled me aside, my close friend, um, and said, oh, Cheryl, um, we just need to tell you that the traditional um, uh, musicians have gone to Russia. I said, what? You know, this is like they went to two Russia. hours. I said, you can't just go to Russia, you need a visa. I was saying these stupid things, you know, because I couldn't imagine it. And, of course, they must have known for weeks and months, but they didn't want to offend me. So 
I said, well, what are we going to do? Because the orchestra couldn't play without the traditional musicians. The whole composition which had been composed between the Australian and the Vietnamese composer was all integrated. I said, that's all right, we fixed it. We So they, all the musicians, all of them, had stayed up all night with Fuang, who's the director of the company, who was the person that I brought out mm. to Dance with Dance North for a year once, had stayed up all night and recorded everything. But the problem was Fuang wasn't dancing in it, so he didn't have the tempos. So I had to sit there. We had no time to do a run-through or hear anything, and we had ambassadors and ministers and it was like a who's who of you know Vietnam all coming in dressed in their finery blah full house 2,000 people and I had never heard the recorded score and I sat there I've never sweated so much I've never I I'd never clenched my fists so much and it was slower the tempo was basically slower than what we'd rehearsed mm. I mean, the dancers were fabulous. They just adapted. But, and, you know, what it taught me was they did not want me to be upset. They wanted me to be Mam Zoe, which I wasn't very good at. I'm still not very yeah. good at. Um, so they found a solution, and they didn't tell me until they'd found the solution. So that was a huge, you know, you just don't expect things like that to happen, and that's a huge cultural difference, mm. you know, and it's... Yeah, so that's so. There, I've learned many lessons like that. That was the most extreme one. <laughs> and I think a circle of lessons in teaching all these lessons, particularly in your cultural practice, how did that shape your time at Oz Dance and being an advocate oh, and, and kind of shaping kind of the Australian? Because in my opinion, I'm, I mean, I am American, but I can really see that you really had a molding hand in shaping the Australian dance landscape. So obviously, all this cultural practice and your really heightened sense of awareness would have been implemented into Australia. And I just come really interested how kind of... Yeah, Ozdance... Well, Ozdance has been a wonderful constant in my life, right from when I was a young dancer, you know, like 20 or something. Um, and it was started out as AADE, Australian mm. Association for Dance Education. And I'd go to all the conferences, and I remember giving a talk in Perth the day, the, uh, the pleasures of... Um, no, what do I call it? Something about the the privileges of isolation when I talked about what I've talked to you about, about being up in a nice, fairly, what was then considered as not, an isolated area and how liberating it would be. So we had the chance, you know, there were educators, there were community people, there were professional dancers, and we, but it had this name, Australian Association for Dance Education. And so when I eventually, I was on different committees in Adelaide yeah. and different places, and then when I became national vice president, we were <laughs> we were looking at what is it that this organisation does? Where does it need to go? It really needs to be restructured. We really need to think about who our clients are now, who, who we serve as a service organisation. And that was wonderful because it was like all these brainstorming things. Well, we represent the professional sector. We represent, can we do all of this? How can we focus it? And so they were very exciting times and we were advocates and we... I remember when there were shocking cuts to the small to medium sector in the 90s. And I have to say, Julie Dyson and Shirley McKechnie were just oh, just incredible all through these years. Um, they, The protests that they galvanised and the incredible articulation 
of letters and how it all got distributed. And those cuts were restored. I mean, we can't believe that now when we've lived through the catalyst once. But, <laughs> you know, that we were a force. You know, Ausfarts was a force. And it was like a family. We all knew each other and, um, and we kept trying to expand our membership. Um, and I, I think a, a lovely moment was when we decided to change the name to Oz Dance. Now, this was a little, you can imagine how heated the conversation was to get to that point. I can't even remember the iterations of the names. There were you know, hundreds of them. But we finally all agreed it would be Oz Dance. And I remember it was Shirley McKechnie and me and Julie and, oh, Ralph, um, Warren, I can't remember who they were. I, and I think several others, jumped up on the table. We cracked open the champagne. We were dancing on like, the table. Like, thank you. In, in, like, you know, we, this is it. Now we've got this thing that won't be just pigeonholed into education, even though education mm. was through everything that we did and still is. Um, so that was a very big upheaval because there were people who resisted that. Um, but Ausdance then became a real national and state force, you know, and get, was getting the funding and so on. Um, and I feel like, I mean, there was something here which I know people can read, which I said at the time and I thought, oh, my God, this could be now. And that made that me... that 21st perfect document, Yeah, yes. made me a little bit depressed but proud. I said, one of the reasons that Ausdance has not only survived but thrived is that chameleon-like, it adapts to the ever-changing environment and conditions in which we arts creatures must live and breathe. However, survival does not only need rapid response mechanisms and a handy camouflage, it needs an ability to take a proactive role in creating favourable conditions for growth. So I wrote that at the 21st anniversary. That was a speech I gave. It was a fabulous party with projections all around of everyone you've ever heard of in dance. And, you know, in the days when sound around, like Reggie Slam will say, got this these special projectors and it was a great party. But thinking back on that, what I wrote then and what I said then, that has never been truer of today. And because Ausdance has lost, Ausdance National yeah. has lost its funding, Ausdance Victoria, thank God, hasn't. But um, Northern, I think all the other states have not. Yeah. But, you know, the National was such a force and has been always such a force. And so fighting for that now, like looking at how we can be sustainable and reinvent ourselves because the national entity is really important. So if you go overseas, Ausdance is really well known internationally. Mm -hmm. It's Ausdance. You know, they don't say Ausdance South Australia or Ausdance Vic or Ausdance, even though that might be the person they contact with. They just say Ausdance. So that was one of the big things that we tried. That's why we have the same logo and the same mm. kind of um, image um, because it's a unifying thing, even though each state has its difference and wonderfully has its difference because the states are diverse and so... Ausdance should be diverse in those states. But in terms of an overarching service organisation to speak, on, not on behalf of, it, but to be the voice through its members, I just feel actually devastated that that platform has gone mm. and a lot of us are trying to keep that. One of the most incredible things that's built up over time are the publications. The extraordinary... Mm extraordinary, the referee scholarly articles, the industry articles, all the newsletters, and it's being archived and going into the National Library, which is fantastic, which Sandra MacArthur Onslow and Julie Dyson, stalwarts of Ausdance, are doing for on behalf of all of us, but I feel like we just have to fight to keep that presence, because if we lost that website, if we lost 
that mm. conduit, and especially with World Dance Alliance, which I, as you know, was Secretary General of for nine years, which has always been hand in hand with Oz Dance, um, it would be sad. So I feel like more than ever we have to be chameleon-like and we have to fight and we have to advocate, but we have to be clever about it because the world's a very sophisticated place, but it's become very binary, mm-hmm. you know, which is not the way arts is. Arts is, not, arts is about multiple perspectives. It's not about binary. Thanks for listening to this special episode. You can find out more about Cheryl Stock at delvingintodance.com where you'll find a list of episode notes and links. You can find Delving Into Dance on Facebook, you can subscribe on iTunes and you can follow on Twitter. At Delving Into Dance, you'll find a range of wonderful episodes including with Meryl Tankard, Noel Tovey, Deborah Jowett, Stephanie Lake, Raphael Bonicella, Gideon Obazanik, and Samantha Hines, who is currently dancing at Dance North. Now that's legacy. Delving Into Dance is a self-funded project profiling the diversity of the dance industry. A big thank you to Tristan Meacham for your recent generous donation. If you too want to help profile dance, please consider contributing on the website. This special season was a partnership with Dance Victoria, a central body for advocating, profiling and promoting dance. You can become a member for as little as $33 a year. Head to ausdancevic.org.au today. Until next time, take care.